Chapter Thirty Seven of Eastland. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Eastland by Mrs. Henry Wood. Chapter Thirty Seven. Mr. Carlyle invited to some pate de foie gras. A sighing morning wind swept round the domains of Eastland, bending the tall poplar trees in the distance swaying the oak and elms nearer rustling the fine old chestnuts in the park a melancholy sweeping fitful wind the weather had changed from brightness and warmth and heavy gathering clouds seemed to be threatening rain so at least deemed one wayfarer who was journeying on a solitary road that saturday night he was on foot a man attired in the garb of a sailor with black curling ringlets of hair and black curling whiskers, a prodigious pair of whiskers, hiding his neck above his blue-turned collar, hiding partially his face. The glazed hat, brought low upon his brows, concealed it still more, and he wore a loose rough pea-jacket, and wide rough trousers hitched up with a belt. Bearing steadily on, he struck into Bean Lane, a byway already mentioned in this history, and from thence, passing through a small unfrequented gate, he found himself in the grounds of Eastland. Let me see, mused he, as he closed the gate behind him, and slipped the bolt, the covered walk. Thou must be near the acacia trees. Then I must wind round to the right. I wonder if either of them will be there, waiting for me. Yes. Pacing the covered walk in her bonnet and mantle, as if taking an evening stroll, had any one encountered her, which was very unlikely, seeing that it was the most retired spot in the grounds, was Mrs. Carlyle. Oh, Richard, my poor brother! Locked in a yearning embrace, emotion overpowered both. Barbara sobbed like a child, a little while, and then he put her from him to look at her. So, Barbara, you are a wife now? Oh, the happiest wife! Richard, sometimes I ask myself what I have done that God should have showered down blessings so great upon me. But for the sad trouble, when I think of you, my life would be as one long summer's day. I have the sweetest baby, nearly a year old he is now. I shall have another soon, God willing. And Archibald, oh, I am so happy. She broke suddenly off with the name Archibald. Not even to Richard could she speak of her intense love for and happiness in her husband. How is it at the grove? he asked. Quite well, quite as usual. Mamma has been in better health lately. She does not know of this visit, but— I must see her, interrupted Richard. I did not see her the last time, you remember. All in good time to talk of that. How are you getting on in Liverpool? What are you doing? Don't inquire too closely, Barbara. I have no regular work, but I get a job at the docks, now and then, and rub on. It is seasonable help, that, which comes to me occasionally from you. It is from you or Carlyle? Barbara laughed. How are we to distinguish? His money is mine now, and mine is his. We don't have separate purses, Richard. We send to you jointly. Sometimes I have fancied it came from my mother. Barbara shook her head. We have never allowed Mamma to know that you left London, or that we hold on a dress where we can write to you. It would not have done. Why have you summoned me here, Barbara? What has turned up? Thorn has, I think. You would know him again, Richard? Know him? 
passionately at Richard Hare. Were you aware that a contest for the membership is going on at Westland? I saw it in the newspapers. Carlyle against Sir Francis Levison, I say. Barbara, how could he think of coming here to oppose Carlyle after his doing with Lady Isabel? I don't know, said Barbara. I wonder that he should come here for other reasons also. First of all, Richard, tell me how you came to know Sir Francis Levison. You say you did know him, and that you had seen him with Thorn. So I do know him, answered Richard, and I saw him with Thorn twice. Know him by sight only, I presume. Let me hear how you came to know him. He was pointed out to me. I saw him walk arm in arm with a gentleman, and I showed them to the waterman at the cab stand hard by. Do you know that fellow? I asked him, indicating Thorn, for I wanted to come at who he really is, which I didn't do. I don't know that one, the old chap answered, but the one with him is Levison, the baronet. They are often together, a couple of swells they looked. And that's how you got to know Levison? That was it, said Richard Hare. Then, Richard, you and the waterman made a mess of it, between you. He pointed out the wrong one, or you did not look at the right. Thorn is Sir Francis Levison. Richard started at her with all his eyes. Nonsense, Barbara. He is. I have never doubted it since the night you saw him in being lane. The action you described of his pushing back his hair, his white hands, his sparkling diamond ring, could only apply in my mind to one person, Francis Levison. On Thursday I drove by the raven when he was speechifying to the people, and I noticed the self-same action. In the impulse of the moment I rode off for you, that you might come and set the doubt at rest. I need not have done it, it seems, for when Mr. Carlyle returned home that evening, and I acquainted him with what I had done, he told me that Thorn and Francis Levison are one and the same. Otway Bethel recognized him that same afternoon, and so did Ebenezer James. They'd both know him, eagerly cried Richard. James, I am positive, would, for he was skulking down to Hallijohn's often then and saw Thorn a dozen times. Otway Bethel must have seen him also, though he protested he had not. Barbara. The name was uttered in affright, and Richard plunged amidst the trees, for somebody was in sight, a tall dark form advancing from the end of the walk. Barbara smiled. It was only Mr. Carlyle and Richard emerged again. Fear still, Richard. Mr. Carlyle exclaimed, and he shook Richard cordially by the hand, for you have changed your traveling toggery. I couldn't venture here again in the old suit. It had been seen, you said, returned Richard. I bought this rig out yesterday, second hand. Two pounds for the lot. I think they shaved me. Ringlets and all, laughed Mr. Carlyle. It is the old hair oiled and curled, cried Dick. The barber charged a shilling for doing it and cut my hair into the bargain. I told him not to spare grease, for I like the curls to shine. Sailors always do, Mr. Carlyle. Barbara says that Levison and the brute Thorn, the ones as much of a brute as the other, though have turned out to be the same. They have, Richard, as it appears. Nevertheless, it may be as well for you to take a private view of Levison before anything is done, as you once did by the other Thorn. It would not do 
to make a stir, and then discover that there was a mistake, that he was not Thorn. "'When can I see him?' asked Richard eagerly. "'It must be contrived somehow. Where are you to hang about the doors of the raven this evening? Even you'd be sure to get the opportunity, for he is always passing in and out. No one will know you or think of you either. Their heads are turned with the election.' I shall look odd to people's eyes. You don't get many sailors in Westland. Not odd at all. We have a Russian bear here at present, and you'll be nobody beside him. A Russian bear, repeated Richard, while Barbara laughed. Mr. Otway Bethel has returned in what is popularly supposed to be a bear's hide. Hence the new name he is greeted with. Will it turn out, Richard, that he had anything to do with the murder? Richard shook his head. He couldn't have, Mr. Carlyle. I have said so all along. But about Levison, if I find him to be the man, Thorn, what steps can then be taken? That's the difficulty, cried Mr. Carlyle. Who will set it going? Who will move in it? You must, Richard. I, uttered Richard Hare, in consternation, I move in it. You yourself, who else is there? I've been thinking it well over, and can hit upon no one. Why, won't you take it upon yourself, Mr. Carlyle? No, being Levison, was the answer. Curse him, impetuously, retorted Richard. Curse him doubtly, if he be the double villain. But why should you scruple, Mr. Carlyle? Most men, wronged as you have been, would leap at the opportunity for revenge. For the crime perpetrated upon Hallijohn, I would pursue him to the scaffold for my own wrong. No, but the remaining negative has cost me something many a time since this appearance of his at West Lynn. Have I been obliged to lay violent control upon myself, or I should have horsewhipped him within an ace of his life? If you horsewhipped him to death, he would only meet his deserts. I leave him to a higher retribution, to one who says, Vengeance is mine. I believe him to be guilty of the murder, but if the uplifting of my finger would send him to his disgraceful death, I would tie down my hand rather than lift it, for I could not, in my own mind, separate the man from the injury, though I might ostensibly pursue him as the destroyer of Hallijohn. To me he would appear ever as the destroyer of another, and the world always charitable. Would congratulate Mr. Carlyle upon gratifying his revenge. I stir in it not, Richard." "'Couldn't Barbara?' pleaded Richard. Barbara was standing with her arm entwined within her husband's, and Mr. Carlyle looked down as he answered. "'Barbara is my wife.' It was a sufficient answer. "'Then the thing's again at an end,' said Richard gloomily, "'and I must give up hope of ever being cleared.' "'By no means,' said Mr. Carlyle. "'The one who ought to act in this is your father, Richard. "'But we know he will not. "'Your mother cannot.' She has neither health nor energy for it, and if she had a full supply of both, she would not dare to brave her husband and use them in the cause. My hands are tied, Barbara is equally so, as a part of me. There only remains yourself, and what can I do? wailed poor Dick. If your hands are tied, I'm sure my whole body is, speaking in comparison, hands and legs and neck. It's in jeopardy, that is, every hour. Your acting in this affair need not put it any the more in jeopardy. You must stay in the neighborhood for a few days. 
I dare not, interposed Richard in a fright, stay in the neighborhood for a few days. No, that I never may. Listen, Richard, you must put away these timorous fears, or else you must make up your mind to remain under the ban for good. And remember, your mother's happiness is at stake equally with yours. I could almost say her life. Do you suppose I would advise you for danger? You used to say there was some place, a mile or two from this, where you could sojourn in safety. So there is, but I always feel safer when I get away from it. There your quarters must be, for two or three days at any rate. I have turned matters over in my own mind, and will tell you what I think should be done, so far as the preliminary step goes, though I do not interfere myself. Only the preliminary step. There must be a pretty many to follow it, sir, if it's to come to anything. Well, what is it? Apply to Ball and Treadman, and get them to take it. They were now slowly pacing the covered walk, Barbara on her husband's arm. Richard, by the side of Mr. Carlyle, Dick, stopped when he heard the last words. I don't understand you, Mr. Carlyle. You might as well advise me to go before the bench of magistrates at once. Ball and Treadman would walk me off there as soon as I showed myself. Nothing of the sort, Richard. I do not tell you to go openly to their office, as another client would. What I would advise is this. Make a friend of Mr. Ball. He can be a good man and true, if he chooses. Tell the whole story to him in a private place and interview, and ask him whether he will carry it through. If he is fully impressed with the conviction that you are innocent, as the facts appear to warrant, he will undertake it. Treadman need know nothing of the affair at first, and when Ball puts things in motion, he need not know that you are here, or where you are, to be found. I don't dislike Ball, mused Richard, and if he would only give his word to be true, I know he would be. The difficulty will be who is to get to the promise from him. I will, said Mr. Carlyle. I will so far pave the way for you that done my interference is over how will he go about it thank you if he does take it up that is his affair i know how i should how sir you cannot expect me to say richard i might as well act for you i know you'd go at it slapdash and arrest levison offhand on the charge a smile parted mr carlyle's lips for dick had just guessed it but his countenance gave no clue by which anything could be gathered a thought flashed across richard's mind a thought which rose up on end even his false hair mr carlyle he uttered in an accent of horror if ball should take it up in that way against levison he must apply to the bench for a warrant well quietly returned mr carlyle and they'd send and clap me into prison you know the warrant is always out against me you'd never make a conjurer richard i don't pretend to say or guess at what ball's proceedings may be but in applying to the bench for a warrant against levison should that form part of them is there any necessity for him to bring you in to say gentlemen richard hare is within reach ready to be taken your fears run away with your common sense richard ah well if you had lived with the cord around your neck this many a year not knowing any one hour but it might get tied the next you'd lose your common sense too at times humbly sighed poor richard what's to be my first move sir your first move richard 
must be to go to this place of concealment which you know of and remain quiet there until monday on monday at dusk be here again meanwhile i will see ball by the way though before speaking to ball i must hear from yourself that thorn and levison are one i will go down to the raven at once eagerly cried richard i'll come back here to this walk as soon as i have obtained sight of him with the last words he turned and was speeding off when barbara caught him you will be so tired richard tired echoed richard hare a hundred miles on foot would not tire me if thorn was at the end of them waiting to be identified i may not be back for two or three hours but i will come and wait here till you come out to me you must be hungry and thirsty returned barbara the tears in her eyes how i wish we dare have you in and shelter you but i can manage to bring some refreshments out here i don't require it barbara i left the train at the station next before westland and dropped into a roadside public house as i walked and got a good supper let me go dear i am all in a fever richard departed reached the part of westland where the raven was situated and was so far favored by fortune that he had not long to wait scarcely had he taken up his lounge outside when two gentlemen came forth from it arm in arm being the headquarters of one of the candidates the idlers of the place thought they could not do better than make it their headquarters also and the road and pavement were never free from loitering starters and gossipers richard hare his hat well over his eyes and his black ringlets made the most of only added one to the rest two gentlemen came forth arm in arm the loiterers raised a feeble shout of levison forever richard did not join in the shout but his pulses were beating and his heart leaped up within him the one was thorn the other the gentleman he had seen with thorn in london pointed out to him as he had believed as sir francis levison which of those two is levison he inquired of a man near whom he stood don't you know him him with the hat off bowing his thanks to us is levison no need to inquire further it was the thorn of richard's memory his ungloved hand raised to his hat was as white as ever more sparkling than ever as it flashed in the street gaslight was the diamond ring by the hand and ring alone richard would have sworn to the man had it been needful who is the other one he continued some gent as came down from london with him his name's drake be you yellow sailor or be you scarlet and purple i am neither i am only a stranger passing through the town on the tramp tramp no and richard moved away to make the best of his progress to eastland and the reports of mr carlyle now it happened on that windy night that lady isabel her mind disordered her brow fevered with its weight of care stole out into the grounds after the children had left her for the night courting any discomfort she might meet as if they could even for a moment cool the fire within to the solitude of this very covered walk bent she her steps and not long had she paced it when she descried some man advancing in the garb of a sailor not caring to be seen she turned short off amidst the trees intending to emerge again when he had passed she wondered who he was and what brought him there 
but he did not pass. He lingered in the walk, keeping her a prisoner. A minute more, and she saw him joined by Mrs. Carlyle. They met with a loving embrace. Embrace of a strange man? Mrs. Carlyle? All the blood in Lady Isabel's body rushed to her brain. Was she, his second wife, false to him, more shamelessly false than even herself had been, inasmuch as she had had the grace to quit him and Eastland before, as the servant girls say, when they change their sweethearts, taking up with another? The positive conviction that such was the case seized firm hold upon her fancy. Her thoughts were in a tumult. Her mind was a chaos. Was there any small corner of rejoicing in her heart? that it was so? And yet, what was it to her? It could not alter, by one iota, her own position. It could not restore to her the love she had forfeited, coupled lovingly together. They were now sauntering up the walk, the sailor's arm thrown round the waist of Mrs. Carlyle. Oh, the shameless woman! Ay, she could be bitter enough upon graceless doings, when enacted by another. But what was her astonishment, when she saw Mr. Carlyle advance, and that his appearance caused not the slightest change in their gracelessness, for the sailor's arm was not withdrawn. Two or three minutes they stood, the three, talking together in a group. Then the good-nights were exchanged. The sailor left them, and Mr. Carlyle, his own arm, lovingly pressed, where the others had been, withdrew with his wife. The truth, that it was Barbara's brother, dashed to the mind of Lady Isabel, was i mad she cried with a hollow laugh she falls to him no no that fate was reserved for me alone she followed them to the house she glanced in the, at the windows of the drawing-room lights and fire were in the room but the curtains and windows were not closed for the night for it was though those windows that mr carlyle and his wife had passed in and out in their visits to the covered walk there they were, alone in their happiness, and she stopped to glance in upon it. Lord Mount Severn had departed for London to, to be down again early in the week. The tea was on the table, but Barbara had not begun to make it. She sat on the sofa by the fire, her face, with its ever-loving gaze upon it, turned up to her husband's. She stood near, was talking with apparent earnestness, and looking down at Barbara another moment, and a smile crossed his lips the same sweet smile so often bent upon her in the bygone days yes they were together in their unclouded happiness and she she turned away toward her own lonely sitting-room sick and faint at heart ball and treadman as the brass plate on their office door intimated were conveyancers and attorneys at law mr treadman who attended chiefly to the conveyancing lived at the office with his family mr ball a bachelor lived away lawyer ball west lynne styled him not a young bachelor midway he may have been between forty and fifty a short stout man with a keen face and green eyes he took up any practice that was brought to him dirty odds and ends that mr carlyle would not have touched with his toe but as that gentleman had remarked he could be honest and true upon occasion and there was no doubt that he would be so to richard hare to his house on monday morning early so as to catch him before he went out proceeded mr carlyle a high respect for mr carlyle had lawyer ball as he had had for his father before him many a good turn had the carlyles done him 
if only helping him and his partner to clients whom they were too fastidious to take up but the two mr carlyle and lawyer ball did not rank alike though their profession was the same lawyer ball knew that they did not and was content to feel humble the one was a received gentleman the other was a country attorney lawyer ball was at breakfast when mr carlyle was shown in hello carlyle you are here betimes sit still don't disturb yourself don't ring i have breakfasted the most delicious pat de foy urged lawyer ball who was a regular gourmand i get him direct from statsborg mr carlyle resisted the offered dainty with a smile i have come on business said he not to feast before i enter upon it you will give me your word ball that my communication shall be held sacred in the event of your not consenting to pursue it further certainly i will what business is it some that offends the delicacy of the carlyle office he added with a laugh a would-be client whom you turn over to me in your exclusiveness it is a client for whom i cannot act but not from the motives you assume it concerns that affair of hallijohn's mr carlyle continued bending forward and somewhat dropping his voice the murder lawyer ball who had just taken in a delicious bonnet boche of the de foy gras balted it whole in his surprise why that was enacted ages and ages ago it is past and done with he exclaimed not done with said mr carlyle circumstances have come to light which tend to indicate that richard hare was innocent that it was another who committed the murder in conjunction with him interrupted the attorney no alone richard hare had nothing whatever to do with it he was not even present at the time do you believe that asked lawyer ball i have believed it for years then who did do it richard accuses one of the name of thorn many years back ten at least i had a meeting with richard hare and he disclosed certain facts to me which if correct could not fail to prove that he was not guilty since that period this impression had been gradually confirmed by little and by little trifle upon trifle and i would now stake my life upon his innocence i should long ago have moved in this matter hit or miss could i have lighted upon thorn but he was not to be found neither any clue to him and we now know that this name thorn was as assumed one is he to be found he is found he is at westland mark you i don't accuse him i do not offer an opinion upon his guilt i only state my belief in richard's innocence it may have been another who did it neither richard nor thorn it was my firm intention to take richard's case up the instant i saw my way clearly in it and now that that time has come i am debarred from doing so what debars you hence i come to you continued mr carlyle disregarding the question i come on the part of richard hare i have seen him lately and conversed with him i gave him my reasons for not personally acting advised him to apply to you and promised to come here and open the matter will you see richard in good faith and hear his story giving the understanding that he shall depart unmolested as he came although you do not decide to entertain the business i'll give it with all the pleasure in life freely returned the attorney i'm sure i don't want to harm poor dick hare and if he can convince me of his innocence i'll do my best to establish it 
of his own tale you must be the judge i do not wish to bias you i have stated my belief in his innocence but i repeat that i give no opinion myself as to who else may be guilty hear this account and when take up the affair or not as you may think fit he would not come to you without your previous promise to hold him harmless to be his friend in short for the time being when i bear this promise to him for you my part is done i give it to you in all honour carlyle tell dick he has nothing to fear from me quite the contrary for if i can befriend him i shall be glad to do it and i won't spare trouble what can possibly be your objection to act for him my objection applies not to richard i would willingly appear for him but i will not take proceedings against the man he accuses if that man is to be denounced and brought before justice i will hold neither act nor part in it the words aroused the curiosity of lawyer ball and he began to turn over all persons likely and unlikely in his mind never according to usage giving a suspicion to the right one i cannot fathom you carlyle you will do that better possibly when richard shall have made his disclosure it's it's never his own father that he accuses justice hare your wits must be wool-gathering ball well so they must to give utterance to so preposterous a notion acquisited the attorney pushing back his chair and throwing his breakfast napkin on the carpet but i don't know a soul you could object to go against except the justice what's anybody else in westland to you in comparison to restoring dick hare to his fair fame i give it up so do i for the present said mr carlyle as he rose and now about the ways and means for your meeting this poor fellow where can you see him is he at westland no but i can get a message conveyed to him and he could come when to-night if you like then let him come here to his house he will be perfectly safe so be it my part is now over concluded mr carlyle and with a few more preliminary words he departed lawyer ball looked after him it's a queer business one would think dick accuses some old flame of carlyle's some demoiselle or dame he daren't go against End of chapter thirty seven